When people think about civil rights in California, they may think of voting, redlining, or job discrimination. They may not immediately think of food, and they probably don't think about Black people and food. But just like Black Californians have been involved in key civil rights initiatives from the California Fair Employment and Housing Act of 1959 to the 1890 California Supreme Court case, which banned school segregation, Black folks have also played and continue to play integral roles in fights for food justice. Fights that are often part of broader social movements that impact all Californians. So why is food a political issue? Food functions as a tool of oppression in low-income communities of color, both in terms of what is not available, right, like fresh fruits and vegetables, but also in terms of what is readily available, an abundance of fast food and junk food. But food can also be a tool of resistance. Understanding what makes food a common site of societal struggle and power requires more than just looking at contemporary conditions. Truly appreciating overlaps between food activism and other civil rights work in the state means paying attention to the roots of food justice in California. Roots often located in Black communities. And that doesn't just mean looking at historical structures that have disrupted Black Californians' food sovereignty. It also means discussing the creative ways that African Americans have long challenged these systems. We knew that as young people, it's hard to obtain knowledge if you're hungry. So the Black Panther Party uh, took it upon themselves to start a breakfast program in the city of Oakland. So as we'll soon discover, not only have Black Californians faced and fought against food inequity in the Golden State, these fights have often been part and parcel of larger struggles for civil rights. Because at the end of the day, food, like many other things, is political. I'm Caroline Collins, and this is the Calag Roots podcast. Calag Roots is unearthing stories about important moments in the history of California farming to shed light on current issues in agriculture. This is the first episode in a three-part series called Seeds of Change, the African-American Roots of Food Justice in California. This series examines the often undertold relationship between food justice and other political movements led by Black Californians. This series is a follow-up of sorts to our previous six-part series, We Are Not Strangers Here, which highlights hidden histories of African Americans who have shaped California's food and farming culture from early statehood to the present. Since that series aired in February and March of 2021, the We Are Not Strangers Here banner exhibit was finally cleared to launch after cultural institutions began reopening, and it's on tour now. So if you're interested in visiting or booking the exhibit or listening to the podcast series that accompanies it, check out www.agroots.org to learn more. A lot of what we understand about contemporary food movements in California is organized around vocabulary like mutual aid and food co-ops, ideas like free meals for children, and what's often presented as buzzworthy new terms like farm-to-table or sustainable agriculture. But these ideas and concepts aren't new. They have roots in indigenous practices from time immemorial that predate California's colonial project. In other words, for over 12,000 years, 
Native peoples across what is now called California engaged in sophisticated water and land stewardship practices that sustained both people and environments for future generations. But for the purposes of this series, which engages undertold Black history in the state, in addition to recognizing long-held Indigenous practices, it's important to note that generations of Black folks have advocated relationships with food that center sustainability, communal exchange, and public relief, concepts we often take for granted as relatively new, progressive, and according to some predominant food voices, as overwhelmingly white. And while this three-part series examines terms like food deserts and food inequity so often conflated with the story of Black people and food in California, these terms don't tell the full story of Black folks' relationship to food pathways in the state or the complex role of food in civil rights organizing, protest, and community building. So these three episodes help unpack this complexity. Featuring characters as diverse as a media-savvy preacher in World War II-era Los Angeles, to a group of young visionaries at the forefront of the 1970s Black Power movement, to a modern-day single mom in Northern California. These stories show how Black Californians have used food either as the heart of a social movement or as one important tool for larger social action to shape notions and expectations of food justice in California work that's central to the Golden State's reputation as forward-thinking and progressive. The history of Black folks and food pathways in California is actually one rooted in connection. For generations, Black settlers shaped life in agricultural areas of California, farming, ranching, establishing rural settlements and communities, so much so that we devoted a six-part Calag Root series to these Black relationships to the land called We Are Not Strangers Here. In the last episode of that series, we discuss how, during the early years of the Great Migration, many Black migrants brought agricultural practices to their new urban and suburban environments. Some planted small gardens or raised chickens and eggs. In other words, they nurtured ways of life that offered the possibility of being somewhat self-sustained in the city. Even with these efforts, carving out lives in cities wasn't always easy for Black Californians in the early 20th century. While California certainly offered opportunities not available to African Americans in the South, Black settlers in California faced their fair share of racial inequity, from housing prejudice to employment discrimination, inequality that also impacted relationships to food. To get a better sense of the structural relationship between inequity and food for this series, we talked to Dr. Annalena Hope Hasberg, Associate Professor of Ethnic and Women's Studies at Cal Poly Pomona. Known to her students as Dr. Hope, she's a scholar, activist, and educator who researches the intersections of race and place, or as she puts it, I examine the world through the lens of race and ethnicity primarily, but I'm also a social scientist. So I look at uh, the ways that our societies and cities and neighborhoods are structured. Structures that impact the economics of food. Food has become this huge commodity, even though it's a basic human need. But Dr. Hope also studies how food represents more than just a collection of commodified goods within a market-based economy. Food also functions as this great equalizer. 
right? When I teach classes on food, I am starting from this position where I'm asking folks, well, how many of you eat? How many of you ate today? How many of you ate yesterday and need to eat tomorrow, right? And everyone has a relationship to food. Relationships that aren't always equal. In fact, Dr. Hope explains that these inequalities can be understood through a variety of intrinsically linked yet distinct food concepts. For example, food security is this idea that everyone has access to enough food at all times for a healthy lifestyle, but there's not a lot of specificity around what kind of food, right? So this could be canned food that's loaded with preservatives and sodium, or it could be, you know, junk food that's being sold at a convenience market. Which can lead to interventions that don't often provide the most effective solutions for communities facing food insecurity. There's also this misconception that when we're talking about food insecurity, that the kind of remedy for food insecurity is food security. You know, creating a food bank, and I have nothing against food banks, where, again, we're distributing a lot of canned goods, not a lot of fresh produce because it's perishable, right? Well-intended, but perhaps not as effective solutions like these to food insecurity bring us to another important concept that we've already mentioned in this episode, food justice. So food justice pushes food security a little bit further beyond this idea of everyone just kind of having access to this generic concept of food and really specifying, well, what kinds of food, right? We want food that's nutritious. We want food that has been sustainably produced, maybe locally produced, food that has been produced with care for the workers whose hands are producing it, for the land itself, for the animals. And access to fresh, affordable, and nutritious food became increasingly limited for Black Californians in the early 20th century, as many had followed national trends and left rural areas, and often agricultural employment, to migrate to city centers. While we brought our agricultural practices and our traditions and our knowledge with us, through practices like kitchen gardens mentioned at the top of this episode, what we didn't have was the same kind of access to space. And that wasn't the only major change for many Black Californians in urban environments who now lived and worked outside of agricultural settings. You also have all of this full-time work that is occupying your time and your energy, right? So now we see Black people engaging with the food system in a really different way, right? Purchasing a lot of food, working in canning plants and food production plants, and so having access now to a lot more processed foods. Add to these circumstances the eventual economic devastation of the Great Depression, which disproportionately impacted Black Californians, and you have conditions that exacerbated food insecurity within many Black communities. And since many federal assistance programs regularly neglected and or discriminated against Black folks, it was often up to Black Californians to aid one another. In fact, in World War II-era Los Angeles, a charismatic young preacher, along with a media mogul who's believed to be the first African-American woman to own and operate a newspaper, joined forces to mobilize relief efforts. In doing so, they not only helped plant seeds of today's food justice movements through their cooperative victory markets, they also helped radically alter the political landscape of the city with implications that continue to this day, which is really the heart of this particular story. 
To tell this story, we need to begin in 1915 Los Angeles with a Black church. But not just any Black church, an AME church, or an African Methodist Episcopal church. It's a historic Black denomination. In fact, in 1787, it became the first Protestant denomination in the country to be founded by Black people, which is pretty important considering the role Black churches would eventually play in the personal and political lives of African Americans. Through these initial churches that African Americans found not only their kind of sacred voice, but their secular voices. And what's interesting is you begin to see a generation removed from slavery. African Americans are participating in the public square. That's urban politics scholar Dr. Lauren Foster. His latest project examines Black migration to Los Angeles in the first half of the 20th century and the role of the African American church in building social mobility. Part of this work includes focusing on critical connections between urban food pathways, cooperative movements, and the church, and the story of one of the state's most compelling examples of the political power of cooperative food initiatives begins with a church rift. The AMEs have a process, moving pastors, that you take a charge for two, three, four, five years. As a connectional organization, AME pastors are itinerant, meaning they're regularly assigned and moved to various churches throughout the connection through appointments by church bishops. These appointments are announced every year at annual conferences. And in 1915, First AME. First AME Los Angeles, the city's oldest black church founded in 1872. First AME had a very um, successful pastor, a guy by the name of Napoleon P. Craig. And they went to conference, and he was summarily removed and shipped off to a small parish church down in San Diego. It was a decision that didn't go over well with Pastor Greggs's congregation. The members were outraged, and they held what they called a protest meeting. According to Dr. Foster, these members weren't just incensed by the loss of a favored pastor— They also viewed the move as a political ploy around prohibition, of all things. It was a hot-button issue of the time that often represented a moral pillar for the established conservative guard of African-American leadership. 1915 is a period in California where the state collectively is going through this period of great transformation with referendum initiative and recall. Reverend Gregg was staunchly a temperance man and had not kind of yielded to the temptations of the liquor industry in Los Angeles. So when this wildly successful pastor in a large metropolis is suddenly moved to a smaller parish in San Diego? For Greg to be removed was a a slap in the face to his congregants, but also a kind of a political move that you understand between those people who had a kind of a nominal, kind of a wink and a nod toward alcohol consumption and those that were very adamant in their opposition to alcohol consumption. So the disgruntled congregants held a series of protest meetings, and eventually... They met with a bishop who was in California for a short amount of time. The bishop would not rescind the charge, and... 
the protesters formed what became the People's Independent Church of Christ. Beginning with 47 members willing to leave the AME denomination, Pastor Greggs led his independent church and grew it until his death in 1935, when a young new preacher took over. And this is Clayton B. Russell. Russell was born in Los Angeles uh, in Boyle Heights, a graduate of Jefferson High School. He had, had some training at Chapman College and at USC. And in 1935, when he was called, he was 25. He had gone to Denmark and was pastoring a small church in the Detroit area. And so he was kind of a child pastor because he had been um, what they referred to as a boy preacher. Under the leadership of this boy preacher, the church took off, growing to about 6,000 members. He was young, he was energetic. And he was civically minded and media savvy. One of the things that allowed Russell to be so influential was that independent church at the time had a radio ministry and that was broadcast live every Sunday and it was called the messenger. In fact, he was the first African-American minister in Los Angeles to have his own radio program. So not only was Russell kind of instrumental vis-a-vis the pulpit, but he had thousands of listeners to his radio broadcast. And so he could make a pronouncement during a sermon that would steer protest demonstrations or mass meetings within a matter of days. Russell also understood the value of key partnerships. Russell and Mrs. Bass were really kind of a tandem. Dr. Foster is referring to Charlotta Bass, a successful entrepreneur and civil rights activist whose paper, The California Eagle, was one of the city's most important black newspapers. Charlotta Bass came to Los Angeles in 1912, and she married a guy named Joe Bass, and they edited and published the paper from 15 together through 1931 or 32, and she continued as the editor of the paper through 1951. Together, Bass and Russell would play key roles in effectively transforming the political makeup of Black Los Angeles. It was work that, in many ways, was spurred by a national tragedy. December 7, 1941, dramatically changed his life and changed the life of the nation. After the shock of Pearl Harbor, the nation abandoned its neutral stance and entered World War II, in many ways changing the fabric of the nation. One major element of change was a dramatic increase in African-American migration to the West. While black folks had been settling in California since Spanish colonization, during the gold rush, and in the early stages of the Great Migration, World War II brought surging numbers of black settlers to cities like San Francisco, Oakland, San Diego, and Los Angeles, where many sought employment in the defense industry and the booming economy beginning to build around it. If you look, 1940 census, I think there may be 75,000 African Americans in Los Angeles. 1950 census, the African American population is 171,000 people. The largest migration up to that point 
of African Americans in the 20th century took place during the decade 1940 to 1950. It's that demographic shock to the system. It was a shock that played out in a variety of ways, one of the most significant being growing structural backlash against Black residents as their numbers increased. This discrimination was explicitly evident in housing inequity. Redlining and restrictive covenants, for example, allowed realtors to refuse selling or renting to African Americans outside of already predominantly Black communities. And these restrictions included Black folks who were able to find work in the war industry. In fact, since the federal government limited the construction of housing units during the war, most builders erected homes specifically for white workers. According to historian Kevin Allen Leonard, who cites a 1945 report published in the Los Angeles Sentinel, of 51,000 housing units built in Los Angeles in the four years after the 1941 bombing of Pearl Harbor, only 942 of them were open to Black people. That's less than 2% of the total housing units built. Because of that discrimination, the Sentinel reported at the time that, quote, hundreds of Negroes are living in alley shacks, abandoned garages, and vacant stores, and any makeshift building available wherever such places can be found. And this inequality traveled beyond housing. Again, Dr. Foster. Whether we're talking about the hiring of African-Americans uh, in the L.A. railway system or in uh, the defense industry or racial isolation and higher levels of segregation and also higher levels of police brutality. These systemic inequities created a united atmosphere that forged all kinds of collaborations within L.A.'s Black community that for decades had been predominantly Republican like the state of California itself. In fact, like most African Americans of her time who followed the party of Lincoln, Charlotta Bass had been a staunch Republican, and for many years her paper was considered a Republican press. However, an ensemble of conditions began to erode party loyalty amongst African Americans. For one, the Republican Party increasingly embraced big business to what many Black folks believed was the detriment of working people. Secondly, Northern white Republicans began to accept the Jim Crow South. And thirdly, in a backlash to the social gains of Black people in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, GOP leadership adopted the so-called Lily White Movement, which aimed to exclude African Americans from the party. Given these conditions, as early as 1928, the Los Angeles Times warned of impending abdication of the GOP by Black people. And seven years prior to that, Charlotta Bass publicly accused the Republican Party of, quote, double-dealing Black voters. So Charlotta Bass and Clayton Russell were part of a group of African-American Angelinos that were, in today's politics, you would say, kind of left the center, uh, much more progressive. They were basically race people. But when the war began? The war years saw... Uh, levels of cooperation between Republicans and Democrats and kind of more conservative and liberal African-Americans toward the war effort. Russell and Bass capitalized on this cooperation. By April of 1942, he and Charlotta Bass announced a mass meeting that was going to be held at 
the Second Baptist Church, and through that came the Negro Victory Committee, the Double V, Victory at Home and Victory Abroad. Which joined the nationwide Double V campaign. At the core of this committee was a vision for racial equality. The Negro Victory Committee was a nonpartisan, in a kind of a formalized sense, movement for African-American equal rights, African-American employment, African-American security. Initially, the committee worked to dismantle discriminatory practices against black workers seeking employment in fast-growing defense industries. Both Russell and Bass uh, worked very closely with the CIO and with union organizers to kind of transform the African-American communities. And in doing so, they also began cultivating support for more progressive, left-leaning policies and political practice. They effectively moved more temperate or conservative African-Americans to kind of follow them in these mass protests and in more aggressive forms of collective behavior. A key component of their collectivist vision focused on food security and food justice. Within short order came not only just the Negro Victory Committee, but the Consumer and Producers Cooperative, which became the four Negro Victory Markets. These markets played pivotal roles in the Black community. They were located along Central Avenue. A predominantly black area of Los Angeles, or what Charlotta Bass's California Eagle affectionately called the, quote, black belt of the city in 1915. Located south of downtown, it began as a multi-ethnic neighborhood with Mexican, Anglo, Asian, and European Americans. In the early 20th century, however, black business and community leaders looking to create an African-American enclave began to settle in the area, bringing churches, law offices, medical practices, real estate, tax and insurance businesses, a hotel, and newspaper offices to the area, including the Eagle. By 1930, nearly 18,000 African-Americans lived in the area, and during the war years, 50,000 more settled there. So these victory markets were strategically located in the heart of Black Los Angeles, where they could provide various forms of local relief. They initially got contracts with wholesalers to provide groceries, and so they would run ads in the Los Angeles Sentinel, the California Eagle, and it was an opportunity to engage in self-help in more ways. It was economic self-help. It was providing quality food and produce to the African-American community and also to provide employment for the African-American community. It was a powerful philosophy that Russell viewed as a critical part of his ministry. And when some in theological circles criticized his church's secular focus, he doubled down on this perspective, stating, quote, I consider it a sin to stand up in the pulpit and preach to hungry people and not help them get a job or to get some food. This ethos didn't just help Russell feed his community or grow the church to 11,000 members at its peak. By the post-war era, Russell and Bass were part of a group of black leadership that helped transform the political landscape of the city. Because before the war, there was... The kind of a tension that simmered between 
what you would call uh, the old guard and the more progressive wings of the African-American community. However, by the mid-1950s... African-Americans have slowly moved from being majority Republican to Democratic. A political shift that would carry wide implications as L.A.'s Black community increasingly grew, or as historian Douglas Flaming writes... From 1890 to 1940, Los Angeles was the only city in California, indeed all the far west, in which African Americans could wield political clout. As the number of Black Angelinos increased steadily, Black ballots began to matter. And this increasing political voice was present throughout the victory markets as they became hubs for political activity that even extended beyond Black communities. Because Russell was part of a group of African-American leaders who, finding commonalities between minority groups, believed people of color needed to work together in order to eradicate racism. For example, in response to the 1943 Zoot Suit riots in Los Angeles, in which white mobs, including servicemen, violently attacked mainly Mexican-American youths, an advertisement for the Victory Markets ran in the California Eagle, which stated, quote, our neighbors, the Mexican people, have been shamefully attacked by the metropolitan press of the city. The ad even took on the city police, stating, quote, The police force has conducted a long terror campaign against the Mexican minority in Los Angeles because we in the Negro community are more unified and have greater political power. We must lead in the demand for full police protection of the Mexican community in Los Angeles. So for leaders like Russell and Bass, food justice efforts such as cooperative markets were part of broader social work. In fact, here's recently archived audio of Clayton B. Russell from a 1979 Cal State Long Beach oral history project, explaining to an interviewer the interconnected nature of daily needs like food with large-scale ideologies such as politics and religion. And as a heads up, it may be a bit hard to understand this clip given the age of this non-digital audio, but if you listen close, we hope you'll be able to appreciate hearing Reverend Russell with his own words in his own voice, explaining the theory behind his ministry's commitment to feeding folks' souls and bodies. The theory of my church or under my administration, the independent church, was that you cannot separate religion from the daily activities of life. If a man's hungry, he, he, he must be fed. So that consists of providing a job for him to earn his daily bread, to take care of his family, to properly educate his children, to have a decent home. Uh, this is mm-hmm. our theory, this is our basis for uh, our activities. Though certainly pivotal, Clayton B. Russell and Charlotta Bass were just two of many Black leaders who helped shape the fabric of California, not only in its political makeup, but in our expectations of what it means for a community to mutually care for one another. And in doing so, their story illustrates one of the many ways that food is political. Or, as Dr. Hope reminds us, 
food is so much at the heart of the the human condition, how human beings connect. And I think that for people who are seeking policy change and people who are seeking community support on the basis of a campaign or trying to really unify a voter base, I think appealing to the most basic needs that a community is facing, that an individual or a family is facing, is such an important way to garner support and to really get people to listen and think critically about the issues that you're putting forward. This story explained one way that a cooperative food movement was part of a larger body of civil rights work that radically altered the political makeup of a city. Tune into our next episode, To Free Ourselves, We Must Feed Ourselves, to learn how a group of young visionaries at the forefront of the 1970s Black Power Movement in Oakland launched a groundbreaking food justice initiative that would impact the entire state and nation. Thanks for listening to the Calag Roots podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can check out other stories like this one at www.agroots.org or on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get podcasts. And by the way, if you subscribe and rate this show, it'll help other people discover it. Now, some important acknowledgments. This podcast was written by me, Dr. Caroline Collins, postdoctoral fellow at UC San Diego and Calag Roots producer at the California Institute for Rural Studies. And it was edited by Lee Schmidt, associate storyteller and researcher at the California Institute for Rural Studies. This three-episode project was made possible with support from the 11th Hour Project at the Schmidt Family Foundation. And finally, special thanks to our interviewees for this episode, Dr. Annalena Hope Hasberg of Cal Poly Pomona and Dr. Lorne Foster of Pomona College, to Cal State Long Beach and oral historian Sherna Berger-Gluck for the use of their Clayton B. Russell oral history audio, and to various authors of the critical anthology Seeking El Dorado, African Americans in California, including Lawrence B. DeGraff, Kevin Mulroy, Quintard Taylor, Betty Yarbrough-Cox, Douglas Flaming, and Kevin Allen Leonard. Their detailed research helped us tell this story.